Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Shrav Mehta. Shrav is a portfolio founder and CEO of the company SecureFrame, as well as a longtime friend. Shrav, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Shrav, you've been at a bunch of companies that have done well. You've been at Lob, you've been at Pilot, you've been at Scale, you've been at Hired. Uh, I may be missing one or two more there. What was the inspiration? I know you wanted to be a founder. Walk us through how you became, uh, how you walked through the uh, idea maze and came up with SecureFrame. Yeah, yeah. So great question. You know, early on, you know, when I was in high school, I was programming and building a bunch of different Android apps. Uh, and I had grown this to like a significant amount of revenue. But uh, at the time, you know, the apps I built weren't very good. And I had like the first mover advantage. So, you know, that worked for quite a while. And then I got completely crushed by, you know, all these apps that were much better. But, you know, after that experience, I knew I wanted to create another company, um, but I wanted to learn from, like, the best founders I could. Um, so I actively tried to seek out, you know, all the best founders I could and tried to work with them. I think, you know, over time, you know, some of the char- characteristics of, like, the startups I like to join and of the ones that, you know, have ended up being successful have become, like, more clear over time. So, you know, initially, I think when I joined most of these companies, I spent a good amount of time with the founders before joining, you know, at uh, with Lob, you know, I'd actually met them at some event. And I had actually used them uh, for a company I was, uh, you know, helping at the time, you know, implement some direct mail. So it ended up being like the perfect fit. Uh, and, you know, I started learning more about Lob, the business, it was like very early on at the time. And it was uh, getting more and more interesting. Um, and I think at the point I had, you know, joined, um, you know, I had initially probably spent, you know, well over like 50 hours kind of with the team. And that really like helped me understand, you know, what the vision was, how they operated. And I think that just tells you a lot. Totally. And, and but before we get into the, the, the broader space, you, you were evaluating companies in, in sort of adjacent spaces. One of the ones you were thinking a, a bit about was, was recruiting. The other uh, you were thinking about sort of, uh, you know, education uh, around recruiting. What was interesting there? But, and why did you end up not, not pulling the trigger? You know, with recruiting, it's a problem that everyone has. You know, every founder, if you talk to them, usually the number one problem that they have is recruiting. So every founder has the problem. And then, you know, it's actually quite easy to make money off recruiting. So, you know, if every hire, you know, if you take a contingency fee of 15%, I think that's what most of these, you know, marketplaces uh, are taking these days, you make like twenty to $30,000. And it may feel like validation in the recruiting space, but things, you know, get significantly, you know, more difficult at scale. Um, and this initial like making twenty or $30,000, which I think, you know, many startups, you know, would, you know, that would be a significant amount of revenue in the recruiting space, it actually doesn't tell you that much. Like it, it kind of gives you a false validation or a false idea that, hey, this idea can really work. Because recruiting is like a very, you know, it's inherently very personal, you know, changing jobs for a person is, uh, you know, a big change in their life. Um, and, you know, the talent pool is quite limited today. You know, it's actually quite hard uh, to build a company with a limited talent pool, or it's it's hard to uh, 
you know, really scale recruiting with the talent pool that's limited, uh, which I would say is definitely the case in like the technology industry. I think the things that ended up being more interesting are like, how do we increase the size of the talent pool? Now, some of this will just come with time. But I think, you know, some of the companies out there like Lambda School have really been able to scale up their program and drive results. And I think that's where, you know, my interests are is like, how do we increase the talent pool rather than, you know, find someone like, you know, a lot of different opportunities. Because I think a lot of people can find opportunities in the technology space uh, by looking at job boards. I think I think in the technology space, there's just a lot of like options if you want to get hired or find a uh, or find a job. And there's a lot of platforms out there. So I think, you know, there's almost uh, too many people focused on that problem because, you know, everyone has it. Totally. And and so uh, in terms of expanding the talent pool, what what startups are you interested in potentially investing in that that might do that? Or or what um, what what sort of, you know, Lambda is one path. What what are other paths of, of companies that could potentially do that? There's kind of a, a set of these startups that, you know, are finding new ways to educate people. And, you know, one of them is like uh, Career Karma. So they help you find, you know, the best dev boot camp. Um, I think there's something interesting there because, you know, before, you know, you have like the common application or you have a college guidance counselor at schools that tells you, hey, here's the college you should go to. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that someone hasn't really done this for dev boot camps. I mean, I think more importantly, there's a whole section of people that don't know, hey, like a developer boot camp is a great way to, you know, get a programming education and get some industry experience and really uh, learn something. But, you know, people, you know, it's not yet in the same category as schools, like, you know, school counselors at high schools aren't suggesting that. So I think that's an interesting, you know, space. I think there's, uh, you know, number of, uh, you know, platforms and organizations like Make School uh, that have, uh, you know, provided an alternative to college. And I think, uh, you know, Make School is even accredited now. I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, so I think we're going to see a huge change in, you know, the types of options that are available to folks to get an education for like a, uh, for a job in the technology industry or honestly uh, in other, in probably every industry. Yeah. Okay, let's get to uh, secure frame. How do how do you get to what sort of the vision of, of the company is and and how you sort of navigated that 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 specific space to to choose that that problem uh, versus you know other problems you could have chosen in space. Yeah, so you know when I was working at these startups, we were selling to a lot of enterprise customers. You know, sometimes Fortune ten, Fortune one hundred companies, and at the time, you know, what would essentially happen is uh, these companies would send you a really long questionnaire. You know, I've seen questionnaires that have that are like sent to you in Excel with like three thousand rows in them, with just a bunch of questions. So many of them that don't apply, and kind of the expectation is that you answer these questions. And it takes a lot of time. So, you know, when you're a startup and maybe, you know, in most of these cases, we were like less than 50 employees. This is a lot of time to just fill out the questionnaire. But it's not just about filling out the questionnaire. It's actually making sure that you can answer the questionnaire in a way that's appropriate. Right. Um, So 
These questionnaires would have things like, hey, have your employees gone through security awareness training? Do you have a business continu continuity policy? Do you have like an information security policy? You know, do you secure your Wi-Fi in this way? And it just takes so long to implement it because, you know, oftentimes startups don't have all these things in place. Um, so, you know, as I started to see this problem more and more, I had friends that were kind of reaching out to me, asking for help with various items. Um, and it ended up being that, you know, everyone was uh, needing to get like SOC 2 compliant or another certification uh, called ISO 27001 compliant or they were basically doing all the things to get compliant um, by, you know, answering these security questionnaires. They were essentially having to go through that same process. So, you know, when I saw how long and painful it was, you know, the average company was spending, you know, at least six to eight months, uh, you know, getting compliant. They were spending a lot of money. There were a lot of failure points uh, and everything was kind of done manually in spreadsheets and data rooms. You know, I felt that this was an opportunity that, you know, required a better product or something better in the space. Essentially, with SecureFrame, we want to be like the QuickBooks of compliance. We want to be, you know, the software that's super easy to use. It's easy to implement from day one. It doesn't take you six to eight months to get ready. And it's not like checking a checkbox. You know, we actually want to make sure that companies are secure. We don't want them to just be checking boxes in order to, you know, pass these security reviews. We actually, you know, want to make sure that companies are, you know, doing the right things and, you know, maintaining a high, you know, security posture. Yeah. And talk more about how startups should be thinking about uh, security and, and what they should be doing. We're seeing more and more security and data breaches happening. And in the last year, you know, my personal data was exposed in 20 different leaks. Most of these leaks weren't direct leaks of, you know, my passwords or anything like that. Um, but it's becoming surprisingly frequent. And this is something, you know, that, you know, I've heard from a lot of different folks. Um, there's a lot of different startups and companies that are responsible for these data breaches. And I think part of the issue is that companies tend to be a lot more reactive when it comes to security than proactive. Um, and it's important to get some of these, you know, best practices in from day one. And not just the technical security, but like your operational security as well. You know, how, you know, are your employees going through security awareness training? Are you assessing the risk of all your vendors? Because oftentimes the way data is leaked is off, is usually not even through the, the main company, but through like a third party vendor. You know, I think the important thing is to, you know, take some steps to be more proactive and get the basics in place from day one. That way, uh, you know, you don't have to react to a situation in which you leaked or had a data breach. Totally. Talk about how people have thought about privacy and security now in 2020 versus, you know, 2015 or, or, or 2010. Like, how have things changed here? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one, you know, I've been noticing that in the last, you know, one to two years, there have been so many people, you know, getting hacked you know, I've known countless people who, who've had their passwords cracked and uh, or, you know, they were exposed in a data breach. Someone tried it out and, you know, they were lucky enough to be saved by like two factor authentication or like, you know, they'll get a text saying, hey, someone logged into your account. Can you verify this? And, you know, I've seen uh, careers get ruined because of information posted online. You know, many people's addresses, property records, personal information is online and the world, I feel like, has gone a lot less private and as a result, like a lot less safe online. Uh, now, 
what I think is even crazier is that there are companies that charge you to remove uh, your data, um, like, you know, your personal address, your phone numbers uh, from their public databases. And that's wild. Uh, they're literally selling your cell phone numbers and addresses for profit. Uh, you know, just in general, privacy has become a huge concern for everyone. And it's not binary. Um, I think we are going to see a GDPR equivalent in the U.S. very soon. Um, the year 2019, you know, began with a significant increase in bill introductions, uh, you know, addressing uh, various aspects of data privacy. Um, and, you know, bills or drafts of bills have been introduced in at least 25 different states uh, in the U.S. So I think we're going to see a lot of legislation to attack this as well. I think privacy and data security is something that people are caring a lot more about. Totally. Zooming out, how have venture capitalists viewed the space over over the past decade? Like, how, how have startups in this category performed, and, and what have been the characteristics of, of of the ones that have? I think there's a lot of security startups today, but I think we're really at the beginnings. Um, the space. You know, security is getting more and more difficult to maintain every day. And I think there's going to be a new set of companies that help with this from all different angles. I think, uh, you know, some of the stuff that's, you know, quite interesting is, you know, two-factor authentication. I think this is kind of, you know, commonplace, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, business environments or in workplaces. Uh, but now, you know, we're seeing increased uh, use of it uh, in uh, people's personal logins or in people's personal environments. Um, you know, one of the startups I think a lot about is, you know, how do we make two-factor authentication a lot easier for folks? Because uh, it's not, you know, super intuitive or easy to use for everyone. Um, but, you know, one thing that's interesting is like every Mac, you know, many PCs have, you know, fingerprint sensors. Um, and, you know, now that's been approved to use as like a two-factor auth key uh, for many sites. Um, but I think... You know, there's a very interesting startup in that space. I won't uh, go into too much details, but I think someone should like build an SDK to make two-factor auth of any sort uh, or any form much easier to implement. There's a lot of room for startups to help with uh, website security and fraud detection, vulnerability scanning, uh, you know, online payments. There's a lot of room uh, there to kind of optimize, uh, uh, you know, optimize risk and uh, you know prevent fraud. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, still to build like a good uh, MDM solution or uh, mobile device management solution. So I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunities in this space and a lot of this technology is like very new. Uh, you know, I think we'll see a lot more to come. Yeah. Say more about if you, you were a VC solely focused on on the space today in, in 2020, what, what more you'd be looking for in terms of if you have requests for startups or, or sort of evaluation criteria of how you think about you know, what, what startups need to, to have for you to want, want to get excited that's sort of unique to, to the space? Yeah, I mean, in general, when I think about, uh, you know, st- you know, startups that, you know, I would want to join or like invest in, um, you know, I look for, uh, you know, a product that I feel like I could sell um, or get my friends to buy. And, you know, oftentimes, what I'll, I'll usually do is go to some of my friends um, and try to sell it to them, or I'll reach out cold to people on LinkedIn if you know I I don't have someone uh, that's really the right persona or the right type of buyer I'm going to, and see what they think. And I think that's like a, a very easy way to like validate things. You know, oftentimes. I'll talk to someone and, you know, they'll be completely against the idea or what we're building. And you, you, you'll kind of ask some, you know, you know, more questions and, 
you know, you ask them some things like, well, you know, if you were to do it, how would you build it? And you can kind of get an idea of, you know, is this product the right thing? Do you think it'll sell? How does this audience um, or type of persona, you know, respond to it? Or is maybe the person I introduced it to, you know, too small or too large of a company, or they're looking at it from a different perspective, and we might, you know, be trying to target a different persona. So, you know, I think a lot about, you know, what, uh, you know, who is the market for our product? Because, you know, for example, there's a lot of products in, uh, you know, uh, the B2B space around security. But, you know, when it comes to like consumer security or like personal security, um, there's not a lot of great products in that space. What's your, uh, what's your anti-request for startups? You know, I I don't like to discourage anyone from doing from working on any startup or anything that they're passionate about. But you know, for me personally, I think in the recruiting space, there's a lot of competition. But for me personally, I think the recruiting space, it's a space that you know, everyone knows because everyone has this problem with recruiting. But I haven't really seen the right product come out or the right thing to you know, differentiate some of these folks or make recruiting a 10x better experience. I think it's a very challenging problem. And, you know, it's something that uh, I think a lot of people are working on. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sold on anything in the space just yet. Beyond uh, beyond security more broadly, why don't you talk about what, what, what sectors are you're interested in or what other frameworks you use when you evaluate your investment investing? You're starting angel invest. We're doing some, you know, work together with, with Village Global on the, on the investing side. Why don't you talk a little bit more about what excites you right now and, and how you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think in general for me, um, the type of companies that excite me are, you know, I, I think what many people would call, um, you know, quote unquote, boring companies. Um, and, you know, these are companies uh, that might be like processing paperwork um, or something that was like done in spreadsheets before. I'm excited about API companies in particular, because when I think APIs, I think like distribution. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities in the API space that, you know, really haven't been attacked. I think, you know, there is going to be a, an increased need for APIs and developer tools. So I'm really excited about that space in particular. I think it's growing significantly. I am also, you know, just excited about other, you know, co- companies in the security and compliance space. Um, you know, like I said, I think we're at the really the beginnings of a lot of the companies uh, in this space. And it'll be exciting to kind of see what comes what comes in the next, uh, you know, few years. Totally. Let's go deeper on, on, on boring companies. What types of spaces within boring companies are, are you particularly uh, excited about or, or what's important when you, you look at CEOs who are building boring companies? Yeah, one is I think it's important for someone to really be an expert in this space or in this problem or uh, someone who's really experienced the pain and the problem themselves. I recently invested in this company called Finch. They're basically uh, building an API uh, for HR and payroll systems. And I think what was particularly interesting about this space is, one, there's been many companies that have tried to integrate uh, with these systems, and it it takes a lot of work uh, to build these integrations. You know, we've uh, had to build some HR integrations of our own. And, you know, firsthand, you know, we saw the pain. You know, there's a lot of security requirements because of the sensitivity of this information. Um, So there was just generally a lot of problems um, that I saw for people who wanted to integrate and, you know, get this data through an API. 
Um, so, you know, when I saw Finch, I immediately understood it and saw the problem. And, you know, I knew several other folks that had the same problem because, you know, oftentimes uh, when we're demoing our product, you know, folks ask us, you know, how did we build this integration? You know, we're trying to do something similar and we'll talk, you know, through it and realize, hey, this is something that's a, it was a difficult problem as well. Uh, so when I had introduced, uh, you know, them and talked to them uh, or talked about them with a few of these folks, uh, you know, I think they instantly got the problem too. And, and that was like a, a, I think a very, you know, obvious solution to me. The other things I, I look for is, you know, who, who are the early customers? Like who, who are they trying to sell to? Or do, does the company have an idea of who they're trying to sell to? Because um, oftentimes, you know, I, I, I talk to companies and, you know, they are selling to a number of different personas. And, you know, the the focus isn't exactly clear. I think when things take off, when you have like one really strong group of customers, like just like a niche or a segment uh, that really loves a product. And if you can expand within that, uh, you know, uh, I guess niche, as you, as you might call it at the time, you know, things can, uh, you know, scale very quickly. Then you can kind of expand to another segment. And now you're building a product that's, you know, 10x better for these specific use cases. And if you can get enough use cases, uh, you know, you're starting to build a really nice uh, big business. Totally. Let's talk more about education. Where, where, where are you excited in education, whether it's whether it's higher ed or, or more broadly? Or how do you, how do you think about that space in, in terms of where you may make uh, any bets in the future? I think top tier schools will remain. But I think, you know, there's going to be a lot more options, you know, for students to choose from. I think it's going to be a lot more common to see someone, uh, you know, go to uh, like Lambda school or maybe, you know, do an apprenticeship or, uh, you know, dive straight into a job um, from just being like self-taught. I think those are going to be more and more common uh, in the future. I don't think schools are, you know, going away. I think there's a lot of people who learn really well in a school setting. For me, I was never really uh, someone who learned well in schools. I really needed to be, you know, doing the thing or practicing it or getting work experience to to get a lot better. And, you know, I think that was a better method of learning for me than school. Um, And I think, you know, we're going to see people, you know, have a lot more options to choose between soon. How do you think about learning a new industry or space? What's the the methodology that they use? Yeah, so, you know, I I like to just explore and I have a natural curiosity to kind of just go into the rabbit hole with things. And, you know, the things that I've found best for, you know, learning a new space is, you know, one is I'll try to go to like Twitter or Reddit uh, and, you know, see if there's like a community that's like already been built around this. Um, and, you know, if it's on Reddit, you know, I can look at like the Wikipedia like the sidebar or the wiki uh, and kind of read through everything. So, you know, if I want to learn about projectors, uh, so I can decide, you know, what projector should I buy for a home theater system? Or, you know, should I buy a projector or should I just, you know, buy a TV? You know, I can go to Reddit, uh, like community on projectors, and they have like a whole Wikipedia talking about like, what are the best projectors, which ones, uh, you know, fail, you know, there's a lot of information. But I think, you know, 
So sometimes, you know, I'll, you know, go to like the top commenters uh, in a subreddit or I'll, you know, message someone who's tweeted about something interesting and I'll try to just, you know, set up a call to pick their brain uh, and ask them, you know, all these questions. I think that's also a great way of kind of discovering uh, what I would call like the unknown unknowns. You know, what are the things that you don't know about? What are the things that you're not thinking about? Because, you know, some of these folks, you know, probably have encountered or dealt with the things that you're about to run into or, you know, have gone through their own learning experience. Um, so I think that's really helpful. When I was learning to, you know, fly planes, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I, I had a very difficult time trying to figure out what's the correct learning path. Um, and then eventually, you know, when I met more folks in the community who, you know, uh, were pilots, uh, you know, I was able to ask them questions. And, you know, it was very clear that there was like a optimal way to get your pilot license. Any other things that we haven't yet discussed that you look for when, uh, when, or that you recommend others look for when investing or joining uh, early stage startups? I mean, I think when you join an early stage company, you really have to, you know, understand the team. I think, you know, not everyone, you know, has the opportunity to spend, you know, like, you know, you know, 40 hours uh, with a company. But, uh, you know, if you do, or if you have an opportunity to really spend more time with the team, understand how they operate, um, you know, what, you, uh, you know, what your day to day could look like, I think that helps a lot. Um, you know, one thing I tell people is when you're joining an early stage company, you want folks who have like a clear vision, you know, who are very focused, a little bit intense. You know, if the company culture, you know, in the beginning isn't just a little bit intense, I think it's almost like a red flag to me. You know, you want people who are, you know, very passionate, very committed. Uh, you know, the found, for the founders, this should be some of the most important, this should be like the, one of the most important things uh, that they're working on, right? So, um, you know, I think that's stuff that you understand, you know, as you spend more time and how... Totally. What's what have you learned, or what's your best advice on on recruiting in terms of how to build a talent magnet? What what you think people founders mis, make mistakes when when recruiting early teams? What have you picked up on? You know, I, I I've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to really dig in and figure out, you know, how how do you uh, you know become really great at recruiting? And I think you know, there's a lot of different styles, a lot of different things that work, but I think. The number one thing is you just have to invest in it. You have to put in the time. A lot of the best hires that, you know, I've made in the past have been people that, you know, we were engaging with for like three or four months. And then, you know, the right time came in and, you know, we were, you know, we were already kind of ready to make an offer. We were, you know, the ones they were already talking to and, you know, we were able to bring them onto the team. I think the other thing is you have to kind of use your network, you know, quite heavily early on, you know, it's really hard to get, you know, your first, you know, five or six employees to join unless they have a lot of belief, you know, you know, they have a lot of belief in you. They have a lot of belief in the product, the company, the team. Um, and, you know, it just takes a lot longer to convince some of these folks. You know, what, what I also tell people is that, you know, sometimes people just aren't a fit for like the stage that you're at. Um, and you should be careful to recruit people who really, you know, understand what they're signing up for. 
you know, oftentimes I'll see, you know, I, I'll, I'll see people who sign up to do engineering and they're expected to sell and demo to customers and do all these other things that, you know, maybe they aren't as comfortable with or they don't really want to be doing. And it ends up, you know, not being the best fit. I think it's important to be super transparent about what your responsibilities are going to be, what the expectations are going to be. And that results, you know, in just a much better experience for, I think, you know, both the company and, and the employee. So I think it's just really important to, you know, uh, really assess that from the beginning. Yeah. Now, you started out as a developer, but really developed a or gained sort of a skill set in, in sales and marketing. What, why don't you talk about that, that journey and, and, and why you did that and, and then how you did that? I think, you know, marketing is becoming a lot more technical. You know, today, your number one way of advertising your business is through essentially your website or your marketing website. Um, so you need a developer to kind of update the site. And today, you know, you're seeing companies uh, use Webflow a lot more to host their marketing websites. But even then, you know, you need to know a little bit about, you know, styling and design and CSS um, to kind of really, you know, put together uh, a nice site. Um, I think there's just a lot of ways where marketing is getting more technical. Um, and at a lot of companies, especially like, you know, probably more so in the consumer space, uh, there's a lot of growth engineers that are focused on optimizing like landing pages, optimizing signup flows, optimizing referral flows. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that I think fall under marketing. The core of it is that marketing is getting, you know, more technical. So, uh, you know, when I was building these Android apps, I found uh, I found that I was spending a lot of my time really working on like marketing it and sharing it with everyone, posting on forums, and getting it more exposure, and you know that's how I was able to get some, you know some of these apps to you know over five hundred thousand uh, installs at the time when Android, uh, the Android marketplace did not actually have like a ton of users um, or a ton of people downloading apps, so. I saw that I could use a lot of my engineering experience, you know, to help grow companies. And that's kind of why I made that transition. Let's go deeper on, on both of those skills. How should founders be thinking about developing a marketing skill set? I think the founders or the CEO of the company, you know, should be essentially your chief marketing officer. They're like the, the evangelist for the company. Uh, you know, they're the ones who are, uh, you know, should be, you know, shouting their brand from everywhere. Um, so I think the number one thing is that like you are like as a founder of a company, you are your first marketer um, and you kind of have to invest in it. So when you think about marketing in an early stage startup, I think, you know, the founders are essentially, you know, the the first marketers of the company. You're the ones they're the ones evangelizing the company, they're the ones spreading the word about the company. But for most B2B companies, you know, I think you want to start off with sales. And I think this is a, you know, a very common uh notion, but you really want to talk directly with your customers. You want to see um, you know, whether they're uh interested in the product, whether more feature development is needed, you know, what requests that they have. And that's a lot easier if you start off by selling, uh, you know, selling directly to them. Now, at some point, you know, you have a product that works for a good segment of customers and you want to start marketing to them. I think, you know, that's when you can start investing, um, you know, a little bit more in marketing. I think one thing a lot of startups should consider doing early on is building a blog. You know, it takes a while to build readership uh, to get to the point where you're able to write a decent number of blog posts per month. It's hard to maintain the quality, uh, and you know, it's hard to know what to write about. But you know, as a as you know, one of the founders of the company, or you know, as someone who is probably very close to their customers at this time, uh, you should have an idea of the questions your customers are asking, what articles or what content might be most helpful. 
And, you know, if you invest in this early on, you know, the SEO benefits start to really add up, you know, in years like, you know, one, two, and three, right? So I think it's important to invest in content early on. The other way I like to think about marketing is just like experiments. You know, there's no one thing that works for every company. You know, there are companies I've had in the past where content is the number one channel. It represents like 80% of the leads. And then uh, when you bring that same strategy over to another company, it's not as effective, but paid advertising is a lot more effective. So every company has channels that, you know, work differently. I think how you decide a channel depends on where your audience is. So, you know, if you have an audience of developers, you know, they might hang out in places like GitHub on Stack Overflow. They're probably using tools like AWS and Google Cloud. Uh, they might uh, be on Twitter. They might um, be uh, in other developer communities. Um, so, you know, based on, you know, where your community is, that's how you kind of decide what channels, you know, might make the most sense to experiment with at first. Um, and once you start running these experiments, you know, you're going to have a lot of failures, but you're going to have some that work really well. And you basically want to double down on the ones that work well, start optimizing and collecting that low-hanging fruit. So really, I the way I think about marketing is just like a series of experiments. How, how about sales? How should founders get up to speed in, in, in terms of how they can learn sales uh, quickly and, and build out a, a sales org? Yeah, so, you know, I think Y Combinator actually has a bunch of, you know, great videos um, as part of like startup school around like, you know, early sales. Um, you know, there's some, you know, books out about, uh, you know, building out an early sales organization like uh, Founding Sales. That book is great. Um, it's written by uh, Pete, who's the founder of Atrium, um, where they help uh, with like sales analytics. So I think that is probably one of the best books, uh, you know, that I would recommend to startup founders for like thinking about sales. Yeah. What common mistakes do you see enterprise founders make as it relates to go to market or what, what common misconceptions do people have about go to market or, or how, how, do, how should they do that well? I think hiring is where it's easy to make, you know, the most mistakes for sales. You know, startup sales, the attrition tends to be pretty high. And, you know, part of the reason I think this is, is, you know, when the founder is selling, it tends to be that the founder knows everything about the roadmap. You know, they know a lot more about the customers. Uh, they can make a lot of decisions right in, right on a call that, you know, uh an average salesperson might not be able to. Um, so it can be really hard making that, you know, transition from, you know, founder-led sales to, you know, having your first rep do sales. Um, I think the stuff I see that, you know, can be more difficult is one, you don't exactly know what's achievable because, you know, you might not have been selling that long as a company. You're not sure how achievable quota is. Um, or maybe you haven't had a lot of success selling yourself. So when you hire this like second uh, or this first salesperson, I think it's important for you to kind of understand that, be like you know clear about expectations. Um, try to find ways to like de-risk the opportunity, or you know if you feel like you're not ready for that yet, is to continue selling yourself. You know I think one of the other mistakes I see is you know founders aren't spending enough time you know selling product themselves or they stop selling the product too early and they, you know, start to lose that closeness with customers. Um, and I think it's really important to maintain that early on. You know, sales hiring is one of the most challenging aspects of, uh, you know, building an early sales organization. It can be really difficult to scale a sales org if you don't know who your target persona is. 
Because if you don't know who your target persona is, you know, you might be selling to someone else entirely, someone who might not be the decision maker, someone who might not, you know, understand the full value of the product, uh, someone you might not really be able to qualify. And, you know, oftentimes I do see people selling to the wrong market or the wrong person. Or instead of talking to a decision maker, you're actually talking to really like a champion or someone who's excited about your product, but, you know, isn't really the decision maker or the person who uh, will be, you know, signing the purchase order. So I think it's really important that you have an idea of who you're selling to, because once you can do that, uh, you know, you have an idea of, you know, how to market to them, what messaging is important to them, you know, what features that uh, are important to them and that they care about. You can be a lot more effective by having a clear customer profile from the beginning. Awesome. Sean, that's, that's a perfect place to, to, to wrap. For, for people who want to learn more about, uh, follow you and, and learn more about SecureFrame, potentially for their startup or, or startups, they know, where can you point them to? Yeah, just check us out at secureframe.com and, you know, we'd uh, be happy to help and chat. Awesome. Yes, Shrav, we are honored to to have you in our portfolio and uh, you're you're one of the more active mentors to to other founders. So if if you're a startup, you should work with Secureframe, one, because it has an excellent product, but also two, because uh, Shrav is is looking out for your your success. Shrav, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Yeah, check us out at secureframe.com and we'd be happy to chat. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.